Lesson 9 for May 20 through to 26. Be who you are. Sabbath afternoon, May 20. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again this week, and before we do, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us as we open the pages. May we see Jesus, and as we look in Second Peter chapter 1, may we see the righteousness that comes through faith that is there. May we see the love that you and your Son expressed when Jesus came to be the propitiation for our sins. We pray that our understanding may be deepened, but also our relationship with you may grow. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through to 7. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. Let's read that again, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through to 7. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. One of the astonishing things about the New Testament is how much truth can be crammed into a very limited amount of space. Take this week's lesson, which covers Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through to 14. In these 14 verses, Peter teaches us about righteousness by faith. He then gets into what God's power can do in the lives of those who have given themselves to Jesus. He talks about the amazing truth that we can become partakers of the divine nature, and that we can be free from the corruption and lust of the world. In fact, we get not only a kind of catalogue of Christian virtues, but Peter presents them in a specific order. One follows another, which follows another, and so forth, until they climax into the most important one of all. He also writes about the reality of what it means to be in Christ and to be cleansed from our old sins, and then even brings in the idea of assurance of salvation, the promise of eternal life in the everlasting kingdom of the Lord. And finally, we even get a little discourse on the crucial topic of the state of the dead. What a lot of rich and deep truths in just 14 verses. Sunday, May 21, A Precious Faith Question. Read Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through to 4. What does Peter say that we have been given in Jesus Christ? That is, how is the reality of grace seen here? Well, first of all, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through to 4. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, 
grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter began this letter by saying that it is addressed to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, that was verse 1, or a faith of equal standing with ours, as it says in the Revised Standard Version. The word translated as precious means of equal value or of equal privilege. He says that they have obtained this precious faith, not that they earned it or deserved it, but that they have received it, a gift from God. Or, as Paul has written, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Ephesians 2 verse 8 It's precious because without faith it is impossible to please God, it says in Hebrews 11 verse 6. It's precious because by this faith we lay hold of many wonderful promises. Peter emphasises that the divine power of Jesus has given to us everything that concerns life and godliness in verse 3. Only through the power of God do we even exist, and only through his power can we attain holiness. And this divine power is given us through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, in verse 3. Let's have a look at John 17, verse 3 as well. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We are called to love God. But how can we love a God we don't know? We come to know God through Jesus, through the written word, through the created word, and through the experience of living a life of faith and obedience. We know God and the reality of God as we experience what he does in our lives, a knowledge that will change us. And we come to know him through the reality of the grace that he bestows upon us. Peter then says something even more incredible, that we have also been given great and precious promises, which include becoming partakers of the divine nature, as he said in verse 4. Humanity was originally created in the image of God. That image has been greatly defaced and degraded. When we become born again, we have a new life in Jesus, who works to restore his divine image in us. But we must flee the world's corruption and lusts if we want this change to occur. And so to finish today, what would your life be like if you were devoid of faith? How does this answer help us to understand why the gift of faith is indeed precious? Monday, May 22, Love, the Goal of Christian Virtue Question. Read Second Peter 1, 5-7, Romans 5, 3-5, James 1, 3-4, and, and Galatians 5, 22-23. 
What similar theme appears in these texts? First of all, Second Peter 1, verses 5 through to 7. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Romans 5, 3-5. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. And James 1, 3-4. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And Galatians 5, to 23 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. It was common among philosophers in the ancient world to list virtues. Such lists are often called a catalogue of virtues, And there are several examples in the New Testament. We've read some of them in Romans chapter 5 and James chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 5. It was highly likely that Peter's readers were familiar with such lists, although there are interesting differences between what a philosopher might list and what Peter lists. Note that Peter has arranged these deliberately in a sequence, so that each virtue builds on the previous virtue, until it reaches a climax in love. Each of the virtues Peter uses has significant meaning. Faith, in this context, faith is nothing less than a saving belief in Jesus, as we read in Galatians 3 and Hebrews 10. Virtue, virtue, the Greek arete, a good quality of any kind, was heralded even among pagan philosophers. Yes, faith is crucial, but it must lead to a changed life, one in which virtue is expressed. Knowledge? Peter surely isn't talking of knowledge in general, but rather the knowledge that comes from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Temperance or self-control? Mature Christians are able to control their impulses, particularly those impulses that lead to excesses. Patience or steadfastness? Steadfastness is endurance, especially in the fields of trials and persecution. Godliness? In the pagan world, the word translated here as godliness means ethical behaviour that results from a belief in a god. Within the New Testament, it also carries the concept of ethical behaviour that results from belief in the one true God. Brotherly kindness. Christians are like a family, and godliness will lead to a community in which the people are kind to one another. Love? Peter brings the list to a climax with love. He sounds like Paul, too, in 1 Corinthians 13.13, And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And so to finish today, before Peter begins the list of virtues, he says that we should make every effort, in verse 5, to obtain these virtues. What does he mean by that? What part does human effort play in our desire to live godly, faithful lives? 
Tuesday, May 23, Be Who You Are After giving us the list of what we should diligently seek for as Christians, Peter then declares what the result will be. Question. Read Second Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through to 11. What is the link between what has already been done for a Christian and how a Christian should be living? Second Peter 1, beginning at verse 8. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble." For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Peter urges his readers to live according to the new reality that is true for them in Jesus. The characteristics of faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love are, as it says in verse 8, yours and abound. The problem is that not all Christians live according to this new reality. Some are ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some people have forgotten that they were cleansed from old sins, as it says in verse 9. So, says Peter, Christians should live out the new reality that is true for them in Jesus. In Christ, they have received forgiveness cleansing, and the right to partake in the divine nature. Therefore, they must give diligence to make your calling and election sure, in verse 10. There's no excuse for living as they had done before, no excuse for being barren or unfruitful Christians, as Ellen White writes in Faith and Works, page 50. We hear a great deal about faith but we need to hear a great deal more about works. Many are deceiving their own souls by living an easy-going, accommodating, crossless religion. Question. Read Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. What does Paul say here that reflects what Peter wrote in the texts for today? Romans 6.11 Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In a sense, both Peter and Paul say, Be what you are, and we are new creatures in Christ, cleansed from sin and partakers of the divine nature. That's why we can live the kind of life that we are called to. We are supposed to be like Christ, which is what Christian means. To finish today, How like Christ are you? In what areas can you do better? Wednesday, May 24, Shedding the Tent. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 read, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. In 1956, Oscar Coleman wrote a short study called 
immortality of the soul or resurrection of the dead? The witness of the New Testament. He argued that the concept of the resurrection is quite incompatible with the concept of the immortal soul. Furthermore, he said that the New Testament lies squarely on the side of the resurrection of the dead. No other publication of mine, he later wrote, has provoked such enthusiasm or such violent hostility. Question. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 57. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead did not rise. So, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then only those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son of God will also be subject to him, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand at jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. 
There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, The spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And, as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So... When this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A study of what the New Testament says about death and resurrection has convinced most New Testament scholars that Coleman was correct. The New Testament indeed assumes the concept of resurrection, not the concept of an immortal soul that survives the death of the body. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 4.16-18, Paul urges those who have lost loved ones to death to be comforted with the knowledge that when Jesus returns again, he will raise the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12-57, we've just read, Paul gives an extended description of resurrection. He begins by pointing out that Christian faith is based on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was not raised, then any faith in him is futile. But, says Paul, Christ has indeed risen from the dead, as the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And Christ's resurrection from the dead makes it possible for all those in him to rise from the dead as well. Paul talks about the resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15. He contrasts the new bodies we will receive in the resurrection with our present bodies. What we have now will die. What we will have in the resurrection never will. In summary, when the New Testament talks about death, it does so in terms of resurrection, not immortality of the soul. This is important to know as a background to reading Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, which will start tomorrow's lesson.
Thursday, May 25, Faith in the Face of Death Question. Read Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through to 15. What does Peter mean when he suggests that he is soon to put off his tent or body? Let's read that then, Second Peter 1, beginning at verse 12. For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Second Peter 1, verses 12 to 14, reveals the occasion of the letter. Peter thinks he's about to die, and the letter contains his last message or testament. That Peter expects to die soon is revealed by the phraseology, as long as I am in this tabernacle or tent, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle or tent which is found in Second Peter one thirteen and 14. Peter likens the body to a tent or tabernacle, which he will put off as he dies. In fact, it is so clear that Peter means his body when he refers to putting off the tent, that modern translators tend to translate these phrases as, as long as I am in this body, since I know that my death will come soon. And that's the NRSV. Nothing in Peter's language suggests that when Peter puts off his tent or body, his soul will survive as a separate entity. Question. Read these verses again, Second Peter one twelve to 15 How does Peter appear to deal with the reality of his impending death, and what does that attitude teach us about faith? Beginning at verse 12 again, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my Decease. 2 Peter 1 verses 12 to 15 gives added solemnity to Peter's words. He writes this in the knowledge that his life will soon come to an end. He knows this because, as he said, the Lord Jesus showed me. Yet there seems to be no fear, no worry, no foreboding. His emphasis instead is on the well-being of those whom he is leaving behind. He wants them to be firm in the present truth, and as long as he is alive, he is going to admonish them to be faithful. We can see here the reality and depth of Peter's experience with the Lord. Yes, he's going to die soon, and will not be a pleasant death either. Let's have a look at John 21, verses 12 to 18. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then from Acts of the Apostles, page 537 and 538. 
Peter, as a Jew and a foreigner, was condemned to be scourged and crucified. In prospect of this fearful death, the Apostle remembered his great sin in denying Jesus in the hour of his trial. Once so unready to acknowledge the cross, he now counted it a joy to yield up his life for the gospel, feeling only that for him who had denied his Lord, to die in the same manner as his master died was too great an honour. Peter had sincerely repented of that sin and had been forgiven by Christ, as is shown by the high commission given him to feed the sheep and lambs of the flock. But he could never forgive himself. Not even the thought of the agonies of the last terrible scene could lessen the bitterness of his sorrow and repentance. As a last favour, he entreated his executioners that he might be nailed to the cross with his head downward. The request was granted, and in this manner died the great Apostle Peter. But his unselfish concern is about the benefits of others. Truly, Peter was a man living out the faith that he taught. So to finish today, how does our faith help us deal with the terrible reality of death? How can we learn to cling to the wonderful hope we have, even in the face of death, because of what Jesus has done for us? Friday, May 26. As we saw, Peter knew that he was soon to die, and he knew, and for a long time too, how he was going to die. That's because Jesus himself had told him in John 21:18, "Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish." What was his end? As we read yesterday in the Acts of the Apostles, page 537 and 538, Peter, as a Jew and a foreigner, was condemned to be scourged and crucified. In prospect of this fearful death, the Apostle remembered his great sin in denying Jesus in the hour of his trial. Once so unready to acknowledge the cross, he now counted it a joy to yield up his life for the gospel feeling only that for him who had denied his Lord to die in the same manner as his master died was too great an honour. Peter had sincerely repented of that sin and had been forgiven by Christ, as is shown by the high commission given him to feed the sheep and lambs of the flock. But he could never forgive himself. Not even the thought of the agonies of the last terrible scene could lessen the bitterness of his sorrow and repentance. As a last favour, he entreated his executioners that he might be nailed to the cross with his head downward. The request was granted, and in this manner died the great Apostle Peter. End of quote. And yet, even with this prospect before him, Peter's concern was for the spiritual well-being of the flock. And that brings us to our five discussion questions for this week. One, in light of all that Peter and the rest of the Bible writers too has written about the need for Christians to live holy lives, 
Why do so many of us fail to be what we are in Jesus? Two, in class, go over the list given in Second Peter 1, verses 5 to 7, talk about each item and ask yourself, how can we better manifest these virtues ourselves? And how can we help others who seek to do the same? Three, considering what we know about Peter, as revealed in the Gospels, what he writes does show powerfully the great work that Christ did in him, even despite his previous failings. What hope and comfort can we take for ourselves from his example? For, in Second Peter 1 verse 12, Peter wrote about the present truth. What is present truth in Peter's time? And what is present truth in ours? And 5. How surely are the dead beyond death, someone wrote. Death is what the living carry with them. How should we, as Christians carry death. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled The Miracle Bible. I was packed and ready to leave for the military. My father put his hand on my shoulder and handed me a Bible to take along. I'll be faithful to God, I promised my father. I knew it wouldn't be easy, but I was determined to try. I joined the other recruits and we started marching toward the basic training camp. The commander made the march as difficult as possible. We had to cross a river on our hands and knees, and when it became very deep, we had to swim with our heavy packs on. When we crawled out on the other side, our bags were soaking wet, but we were given no chance to rest or dry out. We continued marching at a rapid pace. As soon as we arrived at the camp, we were given other exercises to do. It was late at night before we had time to unpack our wet bags. Pulling out my clothes and other belongings, I wrung river water out of each item and laid them out to dry. Then my eyes fell on the Bible from my father. I groaned, sure it would be ruined from the water. But as I touched it, it felt dry. Surprised, I pulled it out of the bag. It was dry. Everything in my bag was soaked with dirty water, except for the Bible. It was clean and dry. I was reminded that God was with me. During the rigours of basic training, however, I sometimes forgot the beautiful evidence of God's presence. I wanted to keep the Sabbath, but it was difficult. I prayed that God would help me find a way. Then I learned that the military was looking for soldiers to teach military children. I immediately signed up. Thankfully, I was chosen to teach, so I didn't have to work on Sabbath. While in the military, I often shared my faith. My roommate talked to me about the Bible. He said he saw something different in me. He accepted my invitation to attend some evangelistic meetings and later gave his life to Jesus. Another soldier was a Muslim. His father didn't want him to become a Christian, but he had attended Seventh-day Adventist schools and was ready to take a stand for Christ. We talked a lot about God and eventually he became an Adventist. I knew that God was with me. He had kept my Bible dry on the first day of training and he made it possible for me to keep the Sabbath and lead others to him, even while serving in 
the military. And that story is from Martin Bengono, who was from the country of Cameroon in Africa. This lesson has been read by Dr Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.